few years ago, my friend, some a friend that many of you know, Aaron Smith, he's a longtime member here at our church, one of our former elders. Uh, a few years ago, Aaron and I were up at our family's cabin up in, uh, up in northern Wisconsin, and driving home, on the way home, we uh, passed a farm, and outside in front of this farm, this farmer had about a dozen antique tractors lined up at the front of his driveway uh, that were for sale. Now, Aaron is a farm kid. He grew up in, uh, in Iowa, and he's a big fan of tractors. He's built tractors and restored tractors. And, and Aaron was like, hey, Jason, oh, man, we got to stop. I got to go check out these tractors. And, uh, and I thought, you know, okay, this will be fun. You know, I'd maybe learn something here. And, and so uh, we pulled into this farmer's driveway, and uh, we started inspecting all the tractors. And there was one particular tractor that caught Aaron's attention. It was this antique Alice Chalmers tractor, a 1940s-era Alice Chalmers tractor. And uh, Aaron was just like, oh, man, this is a beautiful tractor. It reminds me so much of, you know, my grandpa's tractor back on the farm. And, and, uh, and this tractor had a sign on it that said, authentic antique Alice Chalmers tractor. Well, we're looking around for a few minutes, and all of a sudden, the, the farmer comes walking out, and he's like, hey, you guys interested in our tractors out here? And, uh, and uh, Aaron starts talking to this gentleman, and, and uh, the guy just, you know, was very clear, oh, yeah, these are all original, these are authentic, I mean, great deal here if you're interested in buying an antique, uh, antique tractor. Well, Aaron starts poking around this tractor. He starts walking around, and, and uh, pretty soon, he says to this farmer, he says, uh, What's, what's the deal with the, the oil temperature gauge here? And the farmer's like, well, what do you mean? And, and Aaron says, well, you, says this, you said this is an all-authentic Alice Chalmers, right? And the farmer's like, yeah, it is. And Aaron says, well, an authentic Alice Chalmers, all the temperature gauges have Alice Chalmers actually written into the, into the gauge. Th this is blank. And sure enough, the farmer says, well, yeah, you know, a few years ago, we, we broke the gauge. I had to replace it. So, yeah, yeah, it's, I, guess, I guess it's not totally authentic. And Aaron starts poking around the tractor a little bit more. And he looks underneath, and uh, he says, now, now what's the deal with, with the snap coupler system under here? And Alice Chalmers is famous for this snap coupler system where you can attach uh, implements without uh, having to get off your tractor seat. And, and uh, he starts looking under there, and He's like, you know, this looks like it's, it's been refurbished. And the farm says, ah, yeah, I guess we've done a little work on that over the years. And Aaron, uh, Aaron pokes around a little bit more, and pretty soon he recognizes one of the, one of the uh, clutch pedals. Isn't an Alice Chalmer clutch pedal. And pretty soon this farmer's got this sheepish look on his face as he's basically been exposed selling this fraudulent tractor, a counterfeit that he has claimed is an all-authentic Alice Chalmers tractor. Now, here, here's the thing. What he didn't expect is that a guy was going to show up in his driveway who knew more about Alice Chalmers tractors than he did. And my buddy Aaron knew the real thing so well that as soon as he saw these various counterfeit parts, he recognized that this wasn't an authentic Alice Chalmers tractor, that this thing had been restored in a whole host of ways. Now, I was thinking of this story this week and this experience as I was studying our passage in the book of Colossians today. Because if you recall, the church in Colossae was under siege from false teachers who were claiming to promote a Jesus that was not the Jesus of history, the Jesus of the Bible. They, they were teaching the Colossians that there was a different Jesus than the Jesus that they had come to know through the ministry of Epaphras, who had come to know Jesus through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And so Paul, who had never met this church in Colossae, was writing to these Colossian believers to help them understand these false Christs, these counterfeits that were being passed off as the real thing. Now, Paul didn't go about doing this by trying to make the Colossian Christians experts in these counterfeits, but what he did was he wanted them to get a vision of the real Jesus, to know the real Jesus so well that as soon as one of these counterfeits crossed their paths, they would recognize it immediately. And that's what we see here in our passage this morning. Paul writing to the church in Colossae to help them get a vision of the real Jesus Christ so that they could recognize the false Jesus Christ that were in their midst. Now, friends, nothing, nothing is more important for our faith than to know the real Jesus Christ. 
We don't have to be experts in every counterfeit religion and every false philosophy that's out there today, but we do need to have a proper vision and a proper understanding of the real Jesus of the Bible. This is as important today as it was 2,000 years ago for the church in Colossae. Because the reality is, is even today, we still face the threat of counterfeits and flawed understandings of Jesus Christ. It was interesting, even this past week, I was reading the, the latest episode, the latest issue of Christianity Today magazine. In this issue of Christianity Today magazine, they had a report from Legionnaire Ministries and Lifeway Research. Their annual state of theology in the American church survey was just conducted. And in this survey, they discovered here the top five heresies among American evangelicals. Three of the five have directly, are directly related to the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? What has he done for us? It's very interesting. I, I read the survey. Five of the most common mistaken beliefs held by evangelicals in America this year. Number one, Jesus isn't the only way to God. More than half, 56% of evangelical respondents affirmed that God accepts the worship of all religions. Isn't that interesting, friends? In our evangelical churches in America, over half of Christians say that God accepts the worship of all religions. Okay? What was the second heresy the survey discovered? The idea that Jesus was created by God. A surprising 73% agreed with the statement, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 73% of people in the evangelical church across America said that Jesus is the first and greatest created being of God. The survey goes on to describe this is a form of Arianism, a popular heresy that arose in the early 4th century. And this heresy is still very much with us today. The survey goes on. What was the third, third, number three heresy that they discovered? Jesus is not God. Given the above beliefs on Jesus as a created being, it's not too surprising that 43% affirmed that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. This is another form of the Arian heresy. Also a form of the Gnostic heresy that Paul was dealing with here in Colossae. This effectively denies the divinity of Christ and his unity with God and the, his unity with God the Father as an equal member in the Trinity who is one God in three persons. Three of the top five heresies have to do directly with Jesus Christ. The other two, the Holy Spirit is not a personal being. And number five, humans aren't sinful by nature. Very interesting, however, that the same heresies that the Apostle Paul was dealing with 2,000 years ago are still very much present with us in our churches even today. See, friends, our world is inundated with counterfeit versions and flawed understandings of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, to help us make sure that we're following the real Jesus, we need to look at Scripture. And specifically, we're going to look at Paul's testimony to the church in Colossae about the person, the position, and the provision of Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul wasn't setting out to make these Colossian believers experts in Gnosticism, but he did want to make them experts in the truth of the Jesus of history, the Jesus of the Bible, so that they would recognize the falsehoods as soon as they crossed their paths. And friends, we can have that same confidence today as we get a real vision of the person, position, and provision of Jesus Christ as described by the Apostle Paul. We're moving on in the letter to the Colossians. We're in Colossians chapter 1 this morning, verses 15 through 20. It's arguably the greatest vision of Jesus Christ that we find in all of Scripture. Many people think that this was a hymn that was sung in the early church at the time of the Apostle Paul. Some say it predates Paul. Some say Paul himself wrote this. But regardless, this was a powerful early church understanding of who Jesus truly is. And here Paul recites this and shares this with the Colossians in order to help them have a proper understanding of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says here in verses 15 through 20. 
He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of his cross. Simple verses that powerfully declare the truth of who Jesus Christ really is. And again, we need to have an accurate vision of the person of Christ, the position of Christ, and the provision of Christ. Paul begins our, our passage this morning answering the question, who is the real Jesus? Who is Jesus Christ? And, and he begins in verse 15 by highlighting for us the person of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The Greek word for image here is where we get our English word for icon. And what Paul means here is that Jesus is the exact likeness or representation of God. God as spirit is invisible. But Jesus is his visible expression. He's the very embodiment of God's nature and character. And this truth is affirmed all throughout the scriptures. For example, we read John 1, verses 1 through 3 and verse 14. In the beginning was the word. John uses the term word in reference to Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word, Jesus, was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. What else do we read in Scripture about Jesus? Look at what Hebrews says, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Look what we read in John chapter 14, Jesus' conversation with his disciple Philip. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And friends, we could go on and on through the Bible's depiction or description of the person of Jesus Christ. When the Apostle Paul in Colossians says that he is the image of the invisible God, Paul is affirming what is taught throughout Scripture that in the person of Jesus Christ, we can experience the exact likeness, the exact imprint of God in his full nature and character. God has personally revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ. Now, friends, think about how this verse alone is a direct assault on everything that the Gnostics were teaching the Colossian Christians. Remember, we've talked about this last couple weeks. Gnosticism, that is, is the false teaching that was being promoted in Colossae. Gnosticism, this counterfeit religion, said that spirit was good, matter is evil. And since matter is evil, the physical world is evil, God would never lower himself to become a man. So, so Jesus certainly wasn't God because God would never take on an evil physical body. And, and so they denied the divinity of Jesus Christ. 
They also denied that Jesus Christ was the creator of all things. They denied that because, again, God would never create evil. So God didn't create the material world. And they denied the, the idea that Jesus was the only path to salvation. They said that Jesus was part of the way, but he wasn't the whole way. In fact, there was a whole series of spiritual beings between God and man, uh, sort of like a, a, an evolutionary bridge between man and God, because again, God is perfect, he, he's spirit, and he would never lower himself to become like like matter, like the physical created world. So he created this bridge of spiritual beings. And Jesus is just the last chain in that, that, the last link in that chain. And so, yeah, you need to know Jesus, but it's Jesus plus. It's Jesus plus a knowledge of all these secret beings and all these rituals that help you ascend the chain to God. And, and so there was this secret knowledge above and beyond Jesus. Paul here in Scripture directly assaults these false beliefs by telling us very clearly that Jesus Christ is God's personal revelation of himself to the world. It's like the story I've shared here before, a story I've shared all around the world about a father and son who were hiking down a dirt path one day, and they came across an anthill that somebody ahead of them had stepped on and smashed. And these ants were scurrying all about, you know, running around. And, and the little boy, he looks up at his daddy. And he says, Daddy, wouldn't it be great if we could go down and tell those ants we love them? Tell those ants we care about them. Help them with their sick and their wounded. And the father said to his little boy, Son, the, the only way we could go down and tell those ants that we care about them and, and that we love them is if we could somehow become ants ourselves. And if we could live like the ants and talk like the ants, by our lives, they would know what we are like. And you see, 2,000 years ago, God looked down on a world that he had created, a world that he loved. And he saw humanity desperate and, and struggling and searching for meaning, looking for hope. And God said, I want to tell you how much I love you. I want to show you what I'm like. And I want to communicate the way that you can have a relationship with me and no hope and life to the full. How was God going to do that? God said, I will become a man. And I will live like a man. And I will talk like a man. And by my life, they will know what I am like. And so 2,000 years ago, God personally revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. See, friends, if you want to know who God is, if you want to know what God is like, then look no further than Jesus Christ. Paul says he is the image of the invisible God. Paul then goes on in verse 15 to describe Jesus as the firstborn of all creation. Now, this is a phrase that has caused a lot of confusion over the years, as many have taken it to mean that Jesus was a created being. That he was the firstborn, the firstborn of all creation. But friends, understand in the ancient world, the term for, firstborn didn't just relate to order, but it also had the connotation, it could also be used to describe rank, priority, and honor. So for example, we read in Exodus chapter 4 verse 22 that God calls the nation of Israel his firstborn. We read in Psalm 89, 27, where God calls King David the firstborn of the kings. Now, friends, remember, Israel wasn't the first of all the peoples on earth, and David wasn't the first of all the kings. So what does this mean? Well, what it means is that in God's eyes, they were both first in rank, priority, and honor. Israel was his firstborn. David was his firstborn. Not chronologically but in rank, priority, and honor. And this is what Paul means when he calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation. He's not saying that Jesus was a created being, that he was the first of God's created beings. No, what he's saying is that Jesus is supreme, that the highest honor belongs to Jesus. Or in our contemporary terminology, we might say Jesus is the goat, the greatest of all time. 
There's nobody greater than him. That's what Paul means when he says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Now, friends, again, why does all of this matter? It matters because any portrayal that depicts Jesus as less than divine is not the real Jesus. And we need to understand today that our world is literally inundated with false Jesus Christ. For example, take the Jesus of the cults. Some of the popular cults or religions in our world today. What do they say about Jesus Christ? The Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus was Michael the archangel, the first creation of Jehovah God. The Mormons, they teach that Jesus was just a man of flesh and bone who evolved to become a god. He's just one god out of a pantheon of gods. Christian science says Jesus is just a divine idea. Baha'i says Jesus is one of nine great prophets. The Unitarian Universalist, Jesus is a good man mistakenly deified by his followers. Freemasonry says Jesus is just a moral teacher. No, no different with, than Buddha or Confucius, Muhammad or Moses. You could go on, Scientology, Jesus is a false dream implanted in our minds by evil aliens. That's true, that's what they believe. The New Age movement says Jesus is just a man who discovered Christ consciousness. Unity, Jesus is a man who perfected a divine idea. Transcendental meditation, Jesus is just an enlightened guru who never suffered or died for anyone. Friends, our world is full of false Jesus Christ today. This is just a small sampling of them. Where do these ideas come from? The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, he says they're the doctrines of demons and deceitful spirits. These are lies, friends. These are deceptions of the enemy who is seeking to lead people astray from a true and proper understanding of the biblical Jesus Christ, the true Jesus it's as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is what? The image of God. Do you want to know who God is, friends? Look to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, Paul says. So Paul reveals to us here the person of Christ. But, but Paul then goes on in our passage this morning to talk about the position of Christ. Do you want to know who the real Jesus is, friends? You need to know him personally, who he is in his person. You also need to know the position he holds, the rank he holds, his authority, right? And in the position of Christ here, we read in verses 16 through 18, for by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were were created through him and for him and he is before all things and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body of the church he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent now what does paul tell us here about jesus christ's position number one he tells us that jesus is creator jesus is creator verse 16 for by him all things were created how much was created by Jesus? All things, right? What does that entail? All things. What does that encompass? All things. Who made it? Jesus. Jesus is the creator. Now, friends, not only does this truth refute heresies like Gnosticism and our modern-day heresies like Jehovah's Witnesses that says Jesus is a created being, the archangel Michael, right? But Paul's testimony here also refutes false philosophies like today's false philosophy of naturalism. Naturalism which says there is no God. There is no supernatural. The universe is just a product of a whole series of random chance events in the history of the cosmos. Life evolved out of slimy algae. It's all an accident. Naturalism, friends, is one of the greatest lies Satan has, over, has ever put over on humanity. Arguably, no philosophy in history has done more to keep people from knowing God than the philosophy of naturalism. That there is no God. This is all just an accident. 
The sad thing about this naturalistic worldview is that it's a 19th century idea that's been completely destroyed by 20th and 21st century science. The idea that this universe is just an accident, that life evolved out of slimy algae. There, there's no scientific evidence for those claims. In fact, the best scientific evidence we have today points strongly to exactly what Scripture says, that in him all things were created, through him and for him. We look at the origin of the universe, where philosophers and scientists today are unanimous in the idea that the universe exploded into existence 14 and a half billion years ago out of nothing. Okay? Now, now that's the secular science that says that. Now, you have to ask yourself some basic questions. Number one, how does nothing explode? And number two, how does everything come from nothing? Right? That's a significant problem for a naturalistic worldview. Well, it's not a problem for a creationist who believes the Bible, who says that in him, in Jesus, all things were created. Jesus is our creator. Where does life come from? Science today tells us in the law of biogenesis that life only comes from life. It does not come from non-living matter. Well, how when no life existed did life arise when life is only begotten by pre-existing life? You go through the scientific evidence. We could look at biology and chemistry and physics. We could look at the anthropic principle, which says that this earth is literally fine-tuned for life. Dozens and dozens of highly restrictive astronomical and physical parameters where if any one of them were varied by just the minutia, minute degrees, life on planet Earth would cease to exist. We could talk about biology and irreducible complexity and how there are literally hundreds of examples of biochemical machinery in the created world that show that life couldn't evolve gradually step by step, piece by piece, because the world is full of these all or nothing systems where they're all present, all at once, all working together, or else they just don't function. And remember, evolution is this idea that life evolves based on survival of the fittest and the weak are weeded out. Well, how do you explain irreducible complexity, these all or nothing systems that we find throughout the biological world? We could go on and on and on. But people who are willing to be honest about the scientific evidence know that this naturalistic philosophy just doesn't work. For example, a number of years ago, the world's leading astronomer and mathematician, Sir Fred Hoyle, speaking for the Brit before the British Academy of Science shortly before his death, he said this. He said, let's be intellectually honest. We all know that the probability of life arising by chance is the same probability of throwing a six on a dice five million consecutive times. Now, friends, go home and try that this afternoon. <laughs> he goes on. Let's be scientifically honest. We all know that the probability of life arising by chance through evolution is the same probability as having a tornado tear through a junkyard and form out the other end of Boeing 747 jetliner. A common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. This guy was the world's leading mathematician and astronomer speaking before some of the top scientists in the world. If you're willing to be intellectually honest about the evidence, the evidence doesn't point to a naturalistic philosophy that says there is no God. No, the evidence points strongly to the idea of a creator. And we shouldn't be surprised that the evidence points to this super intellect because the Bible tells us that by him all things were created. Through him and for him. Jesus is the creator. Another powerful implication of this truth of Jesus as our creator is the assurance that we have of Jesus' power and authority over the spirit realm. Paul goes on and he says that all things were created through him and for him. All things, he says, including things visible and invisible. He goes on here to describe thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. A lot of scholars think that those are literally terms taken from Gnosticism to describe these various spiritual emanations from God between God and man. The rulers, the thrones, the dominions, the authorities. These were part of this spiritual hierarchy that the Gnostics believed in. And Paul says even the spirit realm 
even the spiritual realm, all the angels, all the demons, whatever you want to believe in in the spirit realm, Jesus created it all. Jesus made it all. Visible and invisible. And friends, in that truth, in our understanding of that truth, it gives us confidence to know that Jesus is Lord even over our spiritual adversary, the devil, and all the demons that follow him. Last week, I asked you to pray for me as I was speaking last Sunday night at an at a evangelical free church in Newell, Minnesota. They had asked me to come and speak on today's New Age spirituality in the occult. There's, there's been an explosion of interest in those areas down in that community. And so I went and I shared the, the truth about what the Bible teaches about God and about the whole New Age movement, these false philosophies that people are buying into. During my evening there, I met two women who in the last year had become followers of Jesus Christ. One in her 30s, one in her 20s. They had both become Christians through the influence of believers in this church. And both of them shared powerful testimonies of how they were so involved in the occult and the New Age movement, they had both been, actually been demon-possessed. One lady shared her testimony with the church that night as, before I got up to speak. She talked about how she was, when she grew up, she was involved in a family that was steeped in witchcraft and Satanism. By the time she became an adult, she was so messed up, she was looking for help anywhere she could find it, so she turned to New Age healers to try to heal her from all the occultic influence she had been involved in. Talk about, you know, the blind leading the blind. But she didn't know any better. So she went to these New Age healers to try to, to heal her from all the trauma and abuse she had experienced in her satanic upbringing. She described how one day she was driving in her car and all of a sudden she felt something literally enter her body. It was a demon. And for a year it tormented her, day and night. She says it was horrible. It got so bad she wanted to take her own life. During this time she met some women from this church where I spoke. And these women came alongside of her and they befriended her and they loved her. And, and she didn't tell them about her demon possession, but they knew something was wrong with this woman and they just kept praying for her and they kept sharing scripture with her. And this lady described in her faith story how it got so bad she was on the verge of taking her life and one day she opened her Bible and she was just reading the Bible and she pleaded to Jesus and cried out to Jesus. She said, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I give my life to you. Help me, Jesus. And she says in that moment she literally felt this being leave her body. And the being left because somebody else took up residence. See, for Christians, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. 1 John 4, verse 4. And when the Holy Spirit lives within a believer, there's no room for the demonic forces of Satan. See, this is part of the testimony that Paul shares with us when he describes Jesus as the creator. Jesus is Lord over all, including the spiritual forces of darkness. Now, Jesus is not only the agent of creation, but Paul tells us here that he is the reason for creation. Paul goes on and he says, all things were created through him and for him. Now, friends, please understand, the purpose of creation is to bring praise and glory to Jesus Christ. Now you are a part of creation. He's the creator. You're creation. And all of creation, Paul says, is to bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ. Now what that means for our lives, friends, is that if this isn't your life's priority, bringing praise and glory to Jesus, you're never going to experience true satisfaction in this life. That's just the sad reality of it. You can look for joy and satisfaction in your work, in your education, in your money, in your, in your body, you know, in sexuality, in partying. You can search the world for joy and satisfaction. But if Jesus isn't your top priority, you're never going to be satisfied. Because the sole reason we were created, according to Paul, through him and for him, is to bring Jesus honor and glory. That's the whole purpose of life. See, our lives are like a pyramid. And God intends us to put Jesus at the top. He's the pinnacle. He's the focal point. The problem is so often we start moving the blocks around. And we say, well, I want Jesus involved, but, you know, yeah, right now, it, you know, work's number one. And, and Jesus, you can be down here kind of on the third level. 
But friends, I promise you, that's not the path to life and life abundant. Life abundant is only found when Jesus is number one. And if you've reshuffled your blocks, you need to get those in the right order. Put Jesus first. This is what Jesus himself talks about in Matthew 6.33 when he says, seek first the kingdom of God and then all these things will be added unto you. Right? Jesus isn't talking about health, wealth, and prosperity here. He's talking about joy and peace and satisfaction and blessing. Life and life abundant. It comes when Jesus is at the focal point of our lives. When we live to bring him praise, honor, and glory. Paul goes on in verse 17 to describe Jesus as our sustainer. In verse 17, Paul says, He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. This is a profound truth. I I, I like how Doug Moose says it in his letters to the Colossians commentary. He says, the universe owes its continuing coherence to Christ. What holds the universe together is not an idea or a virtue, but a person. The resurrected Jesus Christ. Without him, electrons would not continue to circle nuclei. Gravity would cease to work. The planets would not stay in their orbits. In him, in Jesus, all things hold together. The Apostle Paul says this very thing to his, in his speech to the philosophers in Athens, Greece, in Acts chapter 17. Paul says, in him, in Jesus, we live and move and have our being. He holds it all together. He's the reason we survive and exist and life is sustained. It's because of Jesus. He not only created the world, but he holds the world in the palm of his hands. And there's many profound implications for this reality, friends. One of the popular worldviews that we see promoted every day in the news and on social media is this contemporary climate alarmism that we see going on in our world today. Our world today, because of this naturalistic philosophy that says there is no God, what has our world done? Our world has turned earth into an idol. And we become to worship the earth. There's no planet B. This is all there is. There's there's nothing beyond this. We're all evolved out of the same universe. This is all there is. And so we got to save the earth. Now, Now, friends, don't hear me wrong here. We have the Christian mandate to be stewards over God's created world. We need to care for the planet. But we also need to know and understand that this world is not going to be destroyed in some cataclysmic climate crisis. It's not going to happen. Why? Because Jesus is the sustainer of this world. And God has told us that he's not going to allow this world to be destroyed in that fashion. Go back to Genesis 8.22. What did God say to Moses after the flood? In Genesis 8.22, God said to Moses, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Why? Because God sustains this world. He holds this world. Jesus is the sustainer. How's the world going to be destroyed? Well, again, the Bible tells us very clearly how it's going to be destroyed. It's not going to be destroyed in a cataclysmic climate crisis. It's going to be destroyed by our creator God at the final judgment, Revelations chapter 20, the great white throne judgment when heaven and earth are going to flee from his presence. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, 7, by the same word, the heavens and the earth that, were now, that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Friends, we know how this world's going to end. It's not going to end in a climate crisis. It's going to end in the righteous judgment of our creator God who is going to judge sin, evil, wickedness in this fallen world once and for all. He's going to dissolve it in fire and then he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. If you want to learn more about that, we did a whole series on that last spring in our end time series here. You can find those messages online. Friends, but we need not fear the climate crisis. There's no crisis We have a sustaining God who holds it all together in the palm of his hands. Do not fear. And because of this reality, Jesus as our sustainer, we also need not be anxious about our lives, about what we're going to eat or drink, what we're going to wear, who's going to provide for us. Remember what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 26, verse 30. He said, look at the birds of the air. 
Look at the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, right? They're dressed in greater splendor than Solomon in all of his glory. How so? How is it? It's because God sustains them. Where do the birds get their food? And where do they get their provision to build their nests? It's the Lord who sustains them who provides all these things. And so Jesus says, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Don't you think if your heavenly father who cares so much about the birds and the flowers of the fields, don't you think that he cares more about you? See, friends, the truth that Jesus is our sustainer changes everything. It gives us a reason to be people of hope and encouragement, and optimism, knowing that God holds us in the palm of his hands. Paul goes on in verse 18 to describe Jesus' positions. He says that Jesus is unsurpassed. Now verses 15 through 17 have been speaking of Christ's relationship to his first creation, our present universe, including the world and everything in it. But now in verse 18, Paul describes Jesus' relationship to his new creation. And notice the words here, the key words here in this verse, verse 18. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn. Now again, firstborn, not chronologically. Firstborn means rank, priority, honor. He's the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be what? Preeminent, supreme, unsurpassed. What is Paul saying here, friends? Paul is saying that Jesus is unsurpassed over all of creation. He's sovereign over his physical creation, and he's sovereign over his spiritual creation, the church. Our former senior pastor, Pastor Rick, used to say this all the time, this is Christ's church. It's Christ's church. Why? Because he's the head. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn, the highest in rank and honor. He is preeminent. This is Jesus' church. Now, friends, I want us to consider what this means. If Jesus is unsurpassed in sovereignty, what should this mean for our lives? What should this mean for our worship, for our work, our money, our families, our time? our relationships, our ambitions, our leisure, our dreams. If Jesus is truly unsurpassed, what are the implications for our lives, friends? Does Jesus take first place in all in your life today? And if you can't answer that question affirmatively, what that means is you've set up idols in your life that are sitting on a throne that belongs to Jesus. Jesus is preeminent. That's the place that he deserves. He's unsurpassed. And we need to examine our hearts on a daily basis and say, Lord, have I set up anything as an idol in my life above you? And if so, forgive me. And let me put you first and foremost again. Lastly, in verses 19 through 20, Paul speaks of the provision that we have in Christ. Paul says in verse 19 through 20, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Two words here are especially important in these verses. Reconcile and peace. What does this mean? The word reconcile speaks to our problem. The word peace speaks to our hope. See, our problem is that we are separated from our holy creator God because of our sin. And there was only one way, only one provision to be reconciled back to God, and that was for God himself to become a man. In him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Why was that necessary, that God became a man? Because by going to the cross, he became the perfect sacrifice, the perfect lamb of God, the perfect substitute for our sins. And this is why we can have peace by the blood of his cross through Jesus. 
Jesus himself told us in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Every single one of us is fallen and sinful and separated from our Creator. But God in his great love for us made a way. He became a man. He went to the cross. He died in our place. He took our sins upon himself. He became our substitute. He was the perfect sacrifice so that we can have peace through him. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Friends, there's no other source of hope. There's no other source of reconciliation than Jesus. Have you put your hope and trust in him? Friends, this is the real Jesus Christ. We see the person of Christ. We see the position of Christ. We see the provision of Christ. And all of us need Jesus. We need to know the real Jesus intellectually, but we need to know him personally and invite him into our hearts to be our Savior and Lord. And I hope you don't miss out on that opportunity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for the power of your word and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you for giving us this powerful vision of Jesus in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, in whom the whole glory of God is seen. He is the visible expression of the invisible God. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is preeminent. And Jesus, help us to never forget those realities and help us to live to worship you and honor you because of the rightful positions you hold. And Lord, help us to be faithful in communicating the good news, the testimony of the gospel to a world that is lost and trapped in darkness. May we be faithful in communicating that there is hope, there is reconciliation, there is peace through the blood of Jesus Christ. If there's anybody here this morning who hasn't embraced that reality for themselves and invited Jesus to be their Savior and Lord, I just pray that right now you would call out to God, even in the quiet of your own heart right now, and say, Jesus, I know I need you. I know I've sinned against you. I want to trust in you right now. As my Savior, as my Lord, I want the peace that's available through your blood. I want the reconciliation that's available through the cross. I want to know the life that comes through your resurrection power. We thank you, Jesus. In your great name we pray. Amen. Friends, would you stand and join us for our closing song this morning?
Amen. Jesus is the King of Kings. I want to leave you with this benediction from Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you, friends. Hey, friends, thanks for joining us online today. If you have further questions, are in need of prayer, or would like to give financially to the ministries of Lakes Free Church, I encourage you to visit our website, lakesfree.org. There you'll also find information regarding our upcoming events. You can access all of our past sermon series, along with a host of other valuable resources. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us in person for one of our Sunday services or other events. We'd love to meet you. Thanks again for joining us, and may God bless you.